0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Welcome to Unfiltered. The 2020 Democratic candidates are all over the country today trying to reinforce or in some cases recover from their debate performances. Elizabeth Warren, who had a pretty decent night, is in Springfield, Massachusetts today, where she had this to say. Democrats have a job to do in 2020. Beat Donald Trump. It's a good, if odd, reminder to the Democrats running for president that the goal of this poll thing is to beat Trump. But he didn't come up a whole lot at the debate. According to 538. Trump was mentioned by the candidates a total of 35 times during Thursday's debate. That's down from 61 and 72 times on the second debate's two nights. The frontrunner, Joe Biden, only mentioned Trump once, despite the fact that his biggest selling point thus far has been, I'm the best to beat Trump. So here's tonight's headline. Yes. This is a Democratic primary, but don't forget it's followed by a general election. Thursday's debate, while highlighting some strong moments from some of the candidates, also revealed looming storm clouds on the horizon for Democrats. What might be working now to get Twitter likes and make headlines might also make it impossible to win in the general. All the candidates say they're united against the common enemy Trump, but it doesn't always seem like they really mean it. If you're here to beat Trump, then why are you trying to do it by proving you're the farthest left on the stage? If you're here to beat Trump, then why are you trying to injure your potential nominee with personal petty attacks? If you're here to beat Donald Trump, then why are you grandstanding on radical, unpopular policies that most Americans can't support and have no chance of becoming reality? Here are just a few things that might feel good in a primary, but also play right into Trump's hands in a general. One, piling up on your well-liked, most electable, and best polling candidate.
2: They do not have to buy in. You just said
3: that. You just no. said that two minutes ago. You just said two minutes ago that they would and have, and have to buy in. Sorted. Are you forgetting what you the said two minutes ago? Informed. Are you forgetting already what you said
0: just two minutes ago?
4: There's a lot of people who are concerned about Uh, Joe Biden's ability to carry the ball all the way across the end line without fumbling. There are definitely moments where you listen to Joe Biden and you just wonder.
1: Okay, another bad idea, cutting a GOP ad while your party is trying to pass meaningful gun legislation.
2: Hell, yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47.
1: Okay, also bad, insisting people don't like something that poll after poll find they actually do. I've actually never met anybody who likes their health insurance company. Also throwing kooky, downright disturbing ideas out there for the hell of it.
3: We bring social workers into homes of parents to help them deal with how
1: to raise their children. Ugh, none of this is helpful. Don't just take my word for it. Here's Democrat Senator Chris Coons on CNN Friday talking about Beto O'Rourke's big gun grab line.
2: I frankly think that that clip will be played for years uh, at uh, Second Amendment uh, rallies uh, with organizations that uh, try to scare people by saying Democrats are coming for your guns.
1: Here's the deal. Yes, primaries are for distinguishing yourself from the field. They're also about getting press and making waves. I get all that, but not if it's at the expense of the real end goal, which in this case is to get a Democrat into the White House. It isn't all that complicated. Trump's wildly unpopular. So are many of his policies. Run against them. That's it. And also stop saying crazy stuff. OK, here to discuss where the Democrats go next, former Democratic senator from Indiana, Evan Bayh. Um, Senator, I think all of these candidates that we saw on Thursday are talented, and conceivably any one of them should be able to beat Trump, but it feels like... Many of the candidates think this primary is happening in a vacuum, and it's not. Moderates and independents, even Republicans, are tuning in, too. Do they need to focus less on scoring points with the far left and more on making the case they can beat Trump?
5: Probably, I see. I thought your lead-in was, uh, was very accurate. It's always a challenge, particularly for the, the candidates who are below the top three, Biden, Sanders, and Warren, who are better known. It's always a challenge for them to try and break through. And the temptation is to try and take more extreme positions or to attack one of the top three to attempt to do that. But as you point out, that takes the spotlight off of Donald Trump, who's the ultimate objective of uh, defeating yeah. him. And it also uh, runs the risk of uh, you know, making you look a little petty and that sort of thing. So, But you know, for those who aren't the top three, it's a little bit like uh, you know, getting down to the end of the ball game, which we're approaching Iowa here before long they got to start throwing the longer Hail Mary type passes, hoping hoping that something changes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, but talk about this this idea of pivoting um, to a general election. How does someone like Elizabeth Warren, for example, tell voters in a general election that she's abolishing their health insurance because she says they don't like it when polls show most Americans do?
5: Well, I think what she meant to say was most Americans don't like their health insurance company, which is a little semantic because, as you point out, most polls show that people do like their doctor. They do like their coverage. My guess is if you took a public opinion poll, most people might not like their health insurance company. But to your point, that's going to be a big attack line if she or Bernie are the nominees in the general election, because most people want the choice. I thought. A Pete yeah. Buttigieg from my home state had a pretty good point. Trust the American people. Give them the option. If they want a public option, take it. But if they want to keep their private insurer, let them do that. I think that's the yeah. that, that strikes a sensible middle ground. And most of the Democratic candidates are on that ground.
1: It was a great line. I thought it was a really good way to frame, to, to make his point. Um, so it was just announced the next debate will be October 15th, hosted by CNN, The New York Times in Ohio. So I wanted to get your take on a couple key moments. From Thursday to think about what some might want to do differently in a month at that debate. Um, let's start with Julian Castro. In my opinion, he wrote his political death certificate on Thursday. Um, should candidates be wary at the next debate of fighting too dirty?
5: Well, of course. Uh, if you do something that's viewed as being, you know, unfair or a low blow. That's just going to uh, you know, blow back on the candidate who's doing that. So yeah, I think they, to the extent they can, stick to the issues, try and differentiate them on that, but don't get into involved in personal things, as you know David Axelrod in your program before, and many yeah. others have said. Ultimately, the public will will make those decisions for themselves.
1: Uh, Beto O'Rourke's gun line, his his you know his passion is evident, and I think his frustration is the frustration of many Americans, but. Do Democrats have to worry about giving Republicans, you know, attack ads?
5: Yeah, I think at the margins, I think Chris Coons was right. At the margins, that's probably going to help the Republicans in the NRA say that every Democrat is a, a you know, a fanatic that wants to start going into people's homes and uh, seizing their guns. But the good news is Beto, with all due respect, unless something changes, is unlikely to be the nominee. Most of the other candidates yeah. did not stake out that position. Yeah. And my guess, Se, is if, if the Second Amendment really is the driving issue for someone, that's just their single-issue voter. Ninety-some percent of those folks probably aren't going to vote for the Democratic candidate anyway.
1: So Warren and Sanders—they um, seem to have forged this like mutual protection pact going on, where they leave each other alone and swing instead at more more moderate candidates. But how long, Senator? Do you think that that can last? Do they need to eventually tell voters why they're different from one another?
5: Yeah, eventually. So it's kind of a dilemma. If you uh, combine the vote for Warren and Sanders, that's actually more. Than the vote for Biden, right? But they got to be respectful of each other because eventually each one wants the other's voters. So if they right. go after the if they go after the other one uh, on the left too hard, that's kind of a tough balance to strike. So ordinarily one of them would run out of money and that would resolve this. But it looks like each one of them is going to have enough resources. So this could go on for a while, and I think in the long run that inures to the benefit of Joe Biden. Right. One thing I'd point out, uh, and it gets to your great point at the beginning of all this, in the, in for the general election electorate about 22% of Americans consider themselves to be liberal, about 32% to be conservative, 40 some percent right. consider themselves to be moderate. So my advice would be to all the candidates, don't forget that, don't alienate those voters because ultimately we're gonna need them to win and yeah. we're gonna need them to govern. So important.
1: Um, so Biden's the front runner currently, we'll see how the debate affects him in new polling that will come out. What do you think he needs to do over the next month to keep that solid?
5: Well, a couple of things. Uh, focus on Trump. I'm surprised he only mentioned him once in the last debate, because, yeah. you know, electability does work for the vice president, because most Democrats... Uh, That's their top priority. Uh, They want someone who's with them on the issues, but even more, they want someone who can uh, win the election. So keep focusing on that. Stay close to the African-American community. That's still one of his uh, aces in the hole, particularly in South Carolina, which can be a bulwark if he stumbles in either Iowa or New Hampshire. And defend yourself, as he was doing in the debate, but take the high road. Be presidential. I think many people in the Democratic Party and in the general election are looking for that, a return to some normalcy.
1: Senator Evan By, so glad you stopped by tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Essie. Thanks. Okay, the Biden campaign was pretty pleased with how things went for the front runner this week. Shots at his age aside, they are less happy with the media. What? I'll explain. And the president gets to hold another rally on Monday in an unexpected place. here for
0: your rivals to play the age card? Sure it is.
1: Well, there was Julian Castro's inexplicable swing and miss, and then Cory Booker's post-debate jabs at Biden's stamina. And just this morning, Tim Ryan was asked again about his comments earlier that Biden was declining.
0: Uh, I, I was, <laughs> I was having an off-the-record conversation with somebody, and that's much different than public.
1: It feels a little like open season on Joe Biden's age this week, but the former vice president has taken it in stride. His camp expected to take incoming fire from his Democratic rivals on that front, and Biden himself even said that it's totally appropriate for voters to consider his age. Team Biden is, however, complaining about another kind of scrutiny from the press. Here's what one of his advisors told Politico this week. I don't know if anybody who has taken... As sustained and vitriolic a negative pounding as Biden, really the most vicious press I think anyone's experienced. Um, come again, what's that now? I think there are some women who'd beg to differ, like Hillary Clinton, like Sarah Palin, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I Can Keep Going, Carly Fiorina, Elizabeth Warren, Ann Romney, Michelle Obama, Melania Trump, the OG of sustained and vitriolic negative pounding, Monica Lewinsky. So is the media really being unfair to Biden? Well, here to discuss is the author of that political article, CNN senior political analyst Ryan Lizza. I'm so glad you did that reporting and got that that bite from a Biden advisor. I mean, and
3: that one got a lot of people g- mocked that line. A lot of people, especially well, uh, Hillary so. Clinton's advisors.
1: Yeah, deservedly yeah. so. I mean, you don't yeah. have to have a long memory to remember some really vicious press treatment of some other candidates. But I yeah. mean, none of this, the point is none of this supposed negative coverage that he's complaining about has shrunk his lead. So that's why yeah, are that's they the complaining? context.
3: And that's the context of it, SC, is that we were talking about, you know, his resilience. And I was asking them, you know, why do you think it is that the guy basically started the year at 30 percent? And as of when that piece was published, Um, Still has that 30%. And, you know, he's gone through several waves of pretty tough um, criticism, right? Yeah. There was the issue about invading women's personal space that, you know, he took a lot of fire. There was the issue that was raised about his history of race relations. I mean, you had, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, when he was uh, talking about his, uh, after Kamala Harris uh, attacked him on his uh, record on busing. Mm So, you know, you went through those two pretty withering phases phases. And then, you know, the Washington Post had an absolutely devastating piece about Biden recently uh, about this story and him confusing all these details. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when a story like that would just knock a candidate out. Right. And, you know, nothing's really done it. And now I think we're in this third or fourth phase here where it's about uncle, you know, old Joe, right? And yes. age is suddenly uh, being raised. So I understand why they think that's, you know, he, he, he they're gloating. The context of that quote was a little bit of gloating that they've been hitting him hard and he's still standing.
1: Um, well, his advisors also told you that the media is younger and, quote, woker than <laughs> the general public. So we don't get Biden's appeal and that this affects the coverage. Do you buy that? This is the one. This is the argument
3: that I think is interesting and is, is a very interesting debate. And I've talked to a lot of young reporters who, frankly, took exception to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, since the piece came out, they believe that there is a younger, more culturally uh, culturally liberal press corps covering them that doesn't quite understand the Democratic electorate and especially the Biden voter, which tends to be older. Mm-hmm. More working class, um, and frankly, more uh, likely to, to be a person of color, right? That's mm-hmm. his coalition, and so they they complain a little bit that the the press is obsessed with the younger hipper Democrats, AOC, mm-hmm. uh, and that the, you know they just think Biden is hopelessly uncool, and that they they would like to explain some of the problems he's having with that sort of collision between Joe Biden and you know woke millennials in, in their phrase now do I think that's all true No but I do think there's something to it I, I, I do think there's something to it I see
1: well it's really it's really interesting to think about um, forgetting the history of women who've been subjected to terrible frustration, there's another guy who regularly gets it pretty bad Donald Trump. Is, you know, is Biden suggesting or Biden's team suggesting that he's treated worse or subjected (laughs) to more scrutiny than Trump? And I would say, you know, he deserves it, of course. But I mean, Donald Trump takes a pounding in the press pretty regularly.
3: I think that's a great question. And to be totally honest, I I didn't really push them very hard on this. Um, You know, look, everyone always complains about the press. A lot of people will ask If they're doing so well, why were they complaining to me uh, about the press? Uh And I don't think it was strategic. You know, I was having some long uh, background conversations with a couple of advisors going over a lot of different issues. And this is one that that came up. So I wouldn't think of this piece as a the biden people calling this reporter to you know bash the press you know mm. it's something that was sort of ferreted out in the in the course of, of reporting N- not some like new strategy you know to attack the press but look your your point is correct ese you can find examples of candidates uh, especially uh, female candidates who have uh, who had a, t- had a had a tougher time uh, than joe biden i think what yeah, you mean and campaign, male and male yeah.
1: candidates i mean mitt romney yeah. was treated terribly <laughs> By yeah. some folks in the press, by some outlets. I mean, this yeah. is part of politics. I just never think complaining about the press yeah, although, is a good look.
3: Here's a question, and I, you know, I don't know the answer. And I really think a content analysis of this campaign would be really interesting to see mm-hmm. which Democrat has been has received the most negative press because they will argue, and you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, sure about Sanders this,
1: insists w- it's him. <laughs> him,
3: but, but what about Warren? I, I think Warren right. has, you know after her initial, I think when she started the campaign, she got hit very, very hard with this whole controversy about, you know, her relationship with the Native American community and her her heritage. Um, The last couple of months, I think that, you know, there's a conventional wisdom among us in the press corps. I think that she's had an easier ride Mm. and that, you know, as she rises that, you know, that's going to end. That is definitely the view of the Biden people. Right, Um, right. You know, Mm. and a part of this is working the refs, you know, telling us in the press, oh, she's had it so easy. So, you know, we feel a little guilty. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I I think there's something to that. Warren has, um, you know, she's she's, you know, I think her she hasn't gone through a cycle in a, quite a while of really, really negative. Uh, it's coming. Uh, it's, of course it's coming. As, she's as, as, it she's rising. Well, it's
1: coming. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan, Lizza, always good to have you on. Thanks so much. Thanks. Jesse. See you soon. OK, jobs, jobs, jobs. That's what the president tweeted just this summer, thinking it would be key to his re-election. Well, that's not working out lately. So new word, turnout, turnout, turnout. I'll dive into that strategy. And are we doing impeachment? Is this a thing that starts next week? Depends on who you ask. I'll ask a Democratic lawmaker for her answer. Yes. Monday, the president will be making his first trip to New Mexico since taking office to hold a re election rally. Why? Well, he wants to turn it red. But this week proved there are some serious warning signs on his road to remaining in the White House. His approval rating in an ABC News Washington Post poll fell from a career high 44 percent in July to 38 percent this week. That drop may be largely due to the fact that 60 percent of Americans say a recession over the next year is likely. And a new CNN poll found that 6 in 10 Americans say Trump does not deserve a second term. But the news this week was not all bad. The Republican win in the special election in North Carolina's 9th district showed how the president's strategy of whipping up the base instead of expanding it could actually work. The president's election eve rally on the more rural eastern edge of the district in North Carolina was key, got results. Democrat Dan McCready won the surrounding county last year in the first go-round of this election. But this week, it was the Republican, Dan Bishop, who is now a congressman. So to triple down on the base strategy, the campaign is rolling out a social network app, reportedly sometime this fall, complete with prizes to mobilize the, quote, army of Trump. That sounds ominous. OK, with me now, Republican strategist and CNN political commentator Alice Stewart and Democratic strategist Basil Smeichel. Basil, I was so intrigued by this trip to New Mexico right. this week. It's a blue state. He didn't win it. Republicans are actually concerned he won't keep some of the states he did win last time. Is this actually maybe an example of him trying to expand the base?
4: He thinks he can. Uh, we saw him talk to uh, HBCUs the other day. Yes. Um, so I-, I think he thinks he can do that, but much of his language pri- and his activity prior to this suggests that no, he wants to double down on his base. Yeah. A typical president in a typical presidency, we would expect someone to expand. He can certainly do that with gun control, for example, mm, to move yeah. beyond his base, move to the middle a little bit. But you don't really see that happening in the, you know based on most of his other actions. Yeah. So my guess is he will doubled down on his base. He thinks that's enough to win. And he thinks Democrats won't do enough to actually pull uh, pull out some of the votes mm. in like suburban uh, suburban uh, counties and such. so you know for him uh, I think it's a, co- a calculation that I don't know if he's making it in terms of like deep strategy yeah but it feels comfortable for him.
1: Well Alice let's talk about suburban voters because uh, you know look at what ha- happened in North Carolina that was a narrow win for Bishop and in fact what should be concerning is the fact that Bishop lost in those Charlotte suburbs. That Trump won in 2016. Charlotte suburbs, by the way, where Bishop is from. Right. So, should Republicans be concerned about now, suburban it, voters? So much
6: is being made about this um, North Carolina races. First of all, there were two of them. Yeah. Both Republicans won. And unfortunately, many of the left and many people are saying, even though we won, it's still a loss. Right. Look, the, the, the key is Trump. A win is a win. In, Trump, Trump came in at the at the night before, yeah. rallied the troops, yeah. got them energized. And he did so in large part by following the same playbook that both of the candidates did by reminding voters in North Carolina what the Democratic Party stands for, Mm -hmm. talking about the squad, talking about the Green New Deal, talking about the policies that many of those running for president are running for, and that does not work for North Carolina, and it's not going to work. As Senator Bayh mentioned uh, earlier, the 40 percent of moderates in the general election are the key. Right. And that's why that's where the president needs to put his focus. And whoever the eventual Democratic nominee, you need to focus on that 40 percent moderate vote. And if the Democratic Party is going to go so far left as they are with Green New Deal, Medicare for all, free college tuition. That's not going to work for that key Go ahead. voting bloc. Though I would add yeah.
4: that there is a lot of research now that suggests that the country actually wants some uh, version of, of the Affordable Care Act. They like mm-hmm. the Affordable Care Act, thinks it could be better, and want Democrats to actually improve on that. In a typical presidency, when we talk about the president's relationship to the economy, what I think is also interesting is another report that said 22 states have actually lost manufacturing jobs in the last mm-hmm. few years. And what that says to me is that even though Trump's base I think, voted more for culture than the economy. Mm. It does leave an opening for Democrats to talk about what hasn't happened under the Trump administration. All of these policies about bringing jobs back that have gone unfulfilled. So I do think there's an opening.
6: But I, I think at 3.7 yeah. percent unemployment and wage growth at 3.2 percent and the labor participation rate at a good rate, those are the kind of numbers that are concrete, have not moved. In fact, they're getting better. The African-American unemployment rate is, at a, is, is strong. Oh. And if those numbers continue, those are the kind of factors that make, make an impact on voters when they go if they're
1: voting on the economy. I want, to, um, I want to show you guys a clip. As the Democrats were debating on Thursday, President Trump was speaking at the Republican retreat in Baltimore. Um, here's one of the things he said. I hit Pocahontas way too early. I thought she was gone. She's emerged from the ashes. And now it looks like she could beat Sleepy Joe. He's fallen asleep. He has no idea what the hell he's doing or saying. I mean, Trump hasn't even gone full Trump yet on a lot of these candidates. This is nothing. Do you worry maybe that Democrats are not prepared for what is coming i mean elizabeth warren is going to get a lot of incoming
4: well you you saw there was a a moment when i forget who it was but one of the candidates said hey we shouldn't be arguing with each other and somebody else was like but this is a democratic primary This is the president and i think that's really the important takeaway that somebody needs to remind these candidates if they don't have it in their head already that what they've experienced now not only will get worse in the context of the primary, right. but it's going to get worse when they face Way Donald worse. Trump. worse. Absolutely but, but, right. But yeah. that's
6: the what Obama has warned against. Absolutely. Do not engage in a circular firing well, squad, which often does happen in a primary. But the key is, yes... Vigorous primaries are important for elections, and it makes every candidate stronger. Yeah. But it should focus on policy contrasts and not get personal. And, we, and,
1: it, and it did get personal because they know. But when Trump's going to get, that, get but, personal. But, but Trump, but he's Trump gonna is going to get so personal, get. But, so much more personal than any of these guys. That's absolutely right. And I and we, just don't think they're ready. We spent
4: a lot of time talking about policy. We we spent yeah. how much time we talk about health care? Right. Uh, right. The, the the nuances of it are one, uh, one thing, but we spent a lot of time talking about policy in that mm-hmm. last debate. Mm-hmm. So I think we'll continue. Continue to do that um, but it's going to get worse oh
1: boy worse. all right Alice Stewart Bezos Michael thank you so much for spending sure. time with me tonight uh, okay aggressive hearings or an impeachment inquiry I don't know depends on whom you ask and that's coming up In the red file tonight, an impeachment inquiry is underway. Or is it? Is it? I don't know. Depends on whom you ask. This coming week, House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler will begin what he calls aggressive hearings. This comes after his committee along party lines approved a resolution outlining the rules of an impeachment investigation on Thursday. So what exactly does that mean? I'm not actually sure. Nadler says, well, it doesn't matter what we call it.
2: Some call this process... An impeachment inquiry. Some call it an impeachment investigation. There is no legal difference between these terms and I no no longer care to argue about nomenclature.
1: Still confused? Here's Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi to clear it all up.
6: Impeachment is a very divisive measure but if we have to go there we'll have to go there but we can't go there unless we have the facts and we will follow the facts.
1: Is this real life I don't know. Maybe my next guest can help me understand exactly what's going on. With me now is Pennsylvania freshman Congresswoman Chrissy Houlihan. Welcome, Congressman. I I don't know. It feels like Democrats, call me cynical, are trying to split the baby, get all the benefits of an impeachment process with none of the bad consequences.
7: And hi. And thank you so much for having me. Uh, I think it. it, I agree with the chairman. It doesn't to me matter a whole lot whether it's an investigation, a proceeding, an inquiry. By speaking uh, with the chairman, which I have uh, personally and individually, my understanding is it is full steam ahead in the Judiciary Committee uh, to find the truth and that I am very much in support of. It's absolutely the job of the judiciary to do that. And we do need to get to the truth as fast as possible.
1: But for someone like you, who's expressed some caution about impeachment, and I would be cautious too, isn't all the impeachment talk and threats of impeachment and hearings basically doing the exact kind of damage that a real impeachment would, the kind of damage that some people are really worried about?
7: So, I, I guess I would say no. I believe that we are proceeding with caution. I think that this is the appropriate process and step to take. I think the Judiciary Committee has, in its purview, the, the role of oversight and investigation. And I think they're doing their job. I think what's also really important is that the rest of the House, or the rest of the body, is also doing its job, my job. And so, throughout the last eight months of my freshman year, as an example, we've passed more than 400 bills. Uh, we've also seen that only about 50 of those bills have actually made it to the Senate and then onward to the president for his signature. So I believe those, you know, those bills have ranged from gun issues to health care issues, to women's safety, to family leave. Uh, The the body, the house has been very, very busy doing its job and oversight is one of those.
1: So you've said your position on impeachment could shift. What would change your mind? What would, what would put you solidly, uh, solidly
7: in the impeach category? So, I think I I am one of the people in Congress who is not a lawyer. There are not very many of us. I'm an engineer, and so I'm very deliberate about the ways that I think about things. I think it would be the facts. And the best understanding that was given to me about my process, my decision process, is it's my job as a member of the House to develop the evidence, to develop irrefutable evidence, if Mm -hmm. it exists, uh, to move to articles of impeachment. And then it's my job, our job, to move that evidence forward to the Senate for them to do what amounts to the analog, the analogy of a trial trial and, if if necessary, uh, sentencing as well. And so until we get to that place where I feel as though we have that body of evidence that's irrefutable, uh, I, I need to see more. I need to learn more.
1: So what are you expecting or hoping to learn this week from Corey Lewandowski?
7: So my understanding from speaking with the chair, uh, both as an individual and also as a freshman class, is that Co- Corey Lewandowski's testimony will be just one of a number of different hearings that will proceed to happen over the next weeks and months. Right. As well, we expect the results of four different court hearing uh, court cases to come back at, uh, in addition. and So I think that the, the body of the evidence will be what I will be looking for. No single you know, smoking gun or, or single statement is necessarily what I'm looking for, but the whole body of the evidence. Congresswoman Chrissy
1: Houlihan, thanks for your time tonight. Also, thanks for your service. You're very welcome. I appreciate it. Have a nice evening. You too. Okay, the White House is expected to release its gun reform proposals this week, six weeks after El Paso and Dayton, and two weeks after Midland-Odessa. What does that lack of urgency portend? That's next. According to new reporting from The Washington Post, the White House is going to roll out its gun violence prevent, prevention plan next week, despite a lack of clarity on the issue from the president himself. Thursday, the president spoke with Senators Chris Murphy, Pat Toomey and Joe Manchin about their background check proposal. But over the past few weeks, he's waffled on whether he'll support them. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says he won't bring any gun legislation to the floor unless the president supports it. I don't blame him. Then came the debate bombshell from former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke saying, hell yes, he is going to take assault weapons away, prompting frustration among some Democratic lawmakers on Capitol Hill who fear that that kind of talk is not productive in their negotiating process. So what will the president do? It's anybody's guess. With me now is Evan McMullen, who launched an independent third-party run in 2016. Evan, I, like you, am a gun owner and a defender of the Second Amendment, but I like you, and I think a majority of gun owners, believe expanding background checks just makes sense. I've, I've covered the debate over guns for years, and I've never seen this many elected Republicans and conservative thought leaders say, yeah, we have to stop being absolutists on guns. Does it feel like this might be a time where some discrete measures could get passed?
2: You know, it it has started to feel that way. You know, with the recent uh, spate of, of mass shootings. Uh, and with more and more Republicans voters getting on board with some uh, common sense gun law reforms and more elected leaders reflecting that support, it has seemed that there, there has been some growing momentum. Uh, yeah. I will say, though, as you know, Essie, as a gun owner, that for the longest time opponents of, of basic gun law reforms, common sense reforms have said, well, listen, we, we can't accept any of these reforms even if they yeah. may seem common sense because the Democrats and those who oppose our Second Amendment rights, they actually just want to take our guns. These are just Trojan horse reforms. And and many Democrats have said, no, that's not true. And I think, Mm -hmm. sincerely, many of them saying this is not what we want to do. But uh, this week during the Democratic primary debate where Beto O'Rourke says, yes, we're coming for your guns, I think that validated all of that sort of fear-mongering and scaremongering among uh, uh, proponents of of, or opponents of any gun reform, these slippery slope arguments. So now as the president and others are trying to negotiate potential reform, I think it makes it a lot more difficult now for those things to get done because of what we heard, unfortunately, from Beto this week.
1: Yeah. And I was talking to someone about this earlier. Everything he said about AR-15s and before that point was I thought he was making a good argument. If you're if you're on the side of gun confiscation, if you're on on that side I think just yelling at the camera, hell, yes, I'm taking your guns, just made it a little too easy for Republicans to make that a talking point. We'll see, uh, you know, if they use it effectively. I could sense Chris Coons' frustration as he was talking about Beto's line in the midst of these very tenuous, fragile negotiations over guns.
2: That's right. And I I would predict that we're going to see this issue, the issue of of gun laws and reforms to our, our laws be even more of a campaign issue now that yeah. now that Beto said what he said. And when they so, laid that but gauntlet it's not, down. He, he did. But, you know, it, it's, it's complicated for the president, though, because on one hand, he's going to be able to play what, what Beto and what a couple of other Democratic yeah. primary contenders have said about confiscating guns, mandatory confiscations, mandatory buybacks. He's going to be able to play that to his rural voters. And, and for many of them, it's going to help... It's going to help mobilize those voters, and, and that's important for the president. I mean, it's critical for him, especially in key swing states. Where it gets complicated, though, I think, is that in the suburbs, where the president is hemorrhaging support, now yeah. you know, going back, his approval rating sinking to so is his all-time low or near it now again. Um, I think people are starting to lose faith or have long lost faith, but increasingly in his ability to lead and the Republican Party's ability to lead under his leadership, under his stewardship. Mm -hmm. And so he, at the same time, to not hemorrhage those votes, needs to show that he can govern, needs to show that when you know, 80 plus percent of Republicans and, and almost 90 percent of all, all Americans favor some common sense resp- responsible yeah. gun law reforms that, that he and that Republicans in Congress can actually govern.
1: Well, Evan, stay, stay there because I want to contrast this issue of guns to another issue that's currently happening, um, a, 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 fight, a fight over it on the Hill. So stay right there. We'll be back in a second. I'm back with Evan McMullen, executive director of Stand-Up Republic. Evan, I think it's interesting to contrast the fight over guns that's currently happening with another uh, that's happening on the Hill, vaping. Trump announced this week that he will move to ban flavored e-cigarettes, which angered a lot of conservatives and even Trump supporters who don't support that kind of regulation. Now, he's since given himself a little um, wiggle room, but in the face of evidence that these are dangerous for kids... Is this kind of conservative absolutism, the same kind we see over guns, is that dangerous?
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, there there are a couple of things happening here. You know, there's a recent increase in uh, in in lung illnesses and and even several deaths that are being tied to uh, e-cigarettes. It's unclear actually what the causes are. And then there's an increase in youth using e-cigarettes. And and I think those are separate issues but connected because a lot of the people getting sick are youth using these e-cigarettes. But yeah. when the administration comes in and says, "Hey, we're going to ban," And flavored e-cigarettes because the youth are using them a lot, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't think mm. that's a, a role for the government. I mean, for example, what would we say that uh, now, I don't use any of this, and I wouldn't advise anyone to. I want to make that yeah. clear. But yeah. would, we, would we say that we're going to ban certain flavors of alcohol because youth enjoy them before their legal age? or um, we're, And where does it end? Do we next say we're going to ban certain brands of alcohol because they're hmm. popular and among the youth? I just don't think that's where the government should be. I think the government needs to do the investigations that it's doing at the state yeah. and federal level, figure out if there are additives in these e-cigarettes yeah. that need to be uh, more heavily Regulated or banned, and deal with that, and warn warn the people about the yeah. dangers. Otherwise, and let them make their own decisions. I gotta go.
1: Um, Evan McMullen, thanks so much for joining yeah. me tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's it for me. Stick around for David Axelrod. He'll be talking to former Attorney General Eric Holder. The Axe Files are next.
0: When you work, you work next level